Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Bespoke Post. Bespoke? Bespoke? Bespoke. Bespoke Scheme. Post. Whatever. I think you can. I think it's actually technically acceptable, but whatever. But leave it. Yeah, in. no. Let's yeah. let's definitely go with that. <laughs> anyway, so, so I was wearing sweatpants. Shrunk and white yeah, here. But before Shrunk and white here interrupted me, I was about to tell you that Bespoke Post is a subscription club that offers monthly theme boxes curated from unique and upcoming brands around the world. Style, grooming, cooking, drinking, travel. They cover all the bases with a wide variety of box themes and no commitments. Did you guys get one? From I did. It was super cool. What'd you guys get? Well, know. one of the things I got was a um an hourglass. That you put on top of a magnet that has little iron fillings as the sand, so it makes cool shapes at the bottom, which is right up my alley, it oddly enough. Alley. Yeah, that's cool. I got the cocktail set. He got the cocktail now set. Now I can make martinis. For guys that love discovering, all right, Bespoke Post, cool-ass new products. <sighs> cool-ass. <laughs> Bespoke Post is the perfect subscription club for guys like me and us. That are always down to explore new brands and products. That's what I always when people say me tell me what's Tommy like. I say Tommy He's always is always products. down to explore new brands. Visit BespokePost.com <laughs> and answer a few short questions that will help them gauge your interest and get a feel for the boxes that'll vibe. Vibe. That'll vibe what's with your work? style. Vibe with your style. Each when people say like what 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 should we what should I get John for a pre I think think about what'll vibe with his style. Each subscription box goes for only forty five bucks. Hmm. Uh, with more than $70 worth of goods inside. That's awesome. Sounds like a deal. To receive 20% off your first subscription box, go to bespokepost.com, enter promo code CONVOS at checkout. That's 20% off your first box at B-E-S-P-O-K-E-Post.com, promo code CONVOS, Bespoke Post, theme boxes for guys that give a damn. But they are cool. We liked our boxes. Huh? Bespoke. Bespoke Post. I'm Dre, and you're listening to Cricket Conversations. On today's episode, we have Michael Smith from the Obama Foundation's My Brother's Keeper Initiative. And, you know, I wanted to talk to him because I'd heard a lot about the initiative, but realized that I didn't know uh, that there was so much that I didn't know. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Hope that you learn like I did. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today for this Cricket Conversation. Thanks for having me, Dre. Good to be here. You are the executive director of My Brother's Keeper. Is that right? Is that your, I mean, I know you run My Brother's Keeper, but is that like your, is that the official title? Executive Director of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance and Director of Youth Opportunity Programs at the Obama Foundation. How did you begin working with the Obamas? Well, goodness, um, the most direct correlation is um, I worked for Steve Case and his wife, Jean, who started AOL for about eight years. Uh, and a lot of the work that they did because AOL was born in D.C. was about public-private partnerships. And so we worked with the Bush administration and then uh, had the opportunity to work with the Obama administration on impact investing and community service. Um, not too long on things, uh, it became things like the President's Jobs Council. And so I worked with Steve and staffed him on those things. Uh, and I actually felt like I worked for the White House because we were doing so much work for the White House. Uh, and then one day I got a call uh, from the Social Innovation Office saying they needed a director of the Social Innovation Fund and would I be willing to make a move. Um, and, you know, I'm a kid from a poor neighborhood in western Massachusetts and they told me I could spend $70 million a year to help expand evidence-based approaches in low-income communities for Barack Obama. And I said, yeah, I think that's worth leaving to have a chance to, to do that. 
and so I, I jumped over uh, into my first time in federal service in 2013, uh, ran the social innovation fund. We moved about $70 million a year, did really great work on youth development. Um, and that summer, uh, my first summer working with the social innovation fund uh, was the summer of the verdict in the Trayvon Martin case. Uh, and that was the summer where President Obama said that we have to do something about these issues. And I sat in my office at the Social Innovation Fund in awe of this president and said, I am so glad I am on his team. And about a day later, I got a call saying, yeah, so we're putting together a team to think about what we should be doing. Will you come over and help us think about it? And from that day on, I had two jobs. Uh, and um, not too long after, probably about a year after, uh, I was asked to come to the White House full time to run the My Brother's Keeper Initiative. Uh, and then when we were leaving the administration, uh, I got one of these calls saying the president wants to see you in the Oval Office, which I had never done by myself before. Uh, and he sat down and we talked for about 30, 45 minutes before one of his national security meetings about what he wanted to do in the next chapter and why this work was so important for him and would I come aboard to help think about what it looks like next. And that's how I ended up here today. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the birth of My Brother's Keeper coming after or as a response to the death of Trayvon Martin. You know, I know you, the alliance has been pushed, that the idea has been pushed because of the explicit focus on, on boys, boys and men. And I, I wanted to know why the explicit focus? How do you respond to people who say, like, why is this not a focus also on women and girls? And like, what, and, and sort of what do you think the state of Black boys in, in the country is right now and why this work is urgent? Yeah, I'll say, I'll say a couple things. One, President Obama's overall domestic policy agenda for the entire time that he was in office was about expanding opportunity for everybody. Um, he was serious that he and Mrs. Obama wouldn't be the last people that looked like them that sat in the White House or sat in certain corporate boardrooms. And so that was our entire agenda, and that's what we tackled. Uh, and after the murder of Trayvon Martin, the president was just really concerned that despite all we were doing, um, we were still seeing these staggering opportunity gaps facing boys and young men of color. And then he was just concerned about how young black and Latino and other brown boys in this country were feeling that what their country felt about them. Um, and so you may remember he um, surprised the press briefing room one day and he talked really honestly and openly about issues of race and I think trying to explain how black mothers and fathers were feeling. And he said, 30 years ago, Trayvon could have been me. Trayvon could have been my son. And he said there has to be more that we can do to make sure young men of color know that their country cares about them and is willing to invest in them. And that became the foundation of My Brother's Keeper. And that's what catapulted us into thinking about despite all the things that we are doing to make sure all young people can reach their dreams, what's happening with this one group of people. And, you know, I'm really proud to come from a White House where um, one of the first things the president did in 2009 was create the Council on Women and Girls. I sat next to um, leaders like Jordan Brooks and, and uh, Kalisha, who worked with Valerie Jarrett on the Council on Women and Girls. We had a great women and girls effort. Uh, we launched $100 million in, in commitments uh, to girls and women of color before we left. And I think our work, I was very proud about the work that happened there uh, to make sure that we were reaching out to not only boys, but girls and young women and making sure all young people could achieve their dreams. Uh, but when My Brother's Keeper was starting, we had to sit down and look at the data. Uh, and there are three kind of major data points that we looked at for boys and young men of color, which became the beginning of My Brother's Keeper, um, education, employment, and justice. On the education side, uh, you look at things like the third grade reading level. We've got 80 percent of black and Latino boys that are not reading at grade level by third grade. 
And those are the same numbers that prisons use to figure out how many beds they're going to put in a few years later. Um, we also look at the education rate. And I know you had our board member, uh, Secretary Duncan, on not too long ago. We were proud to get to an 84 percent graduation rate in this country. But if you look at black and Latino boys in this country and tribal boys, you're still seeing 50 percent graduation rates. We were actually just recently uh, with folks from Rochester, New York, that has a My Brother's Keeper program. And 2009 and two, 2010, they were graduating 9% of their black boys and 10% of their Latino boys. And that that's a problem. We've got to do something about it. Wow, that is yeah. nuts. You know, it, it's it's crazy. It's, 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 it's completely unsustainable for our country. And that's education. If you look into employment, we all know the jobs numbers, but – you know, President Obama's Council on Economic Advisors put out a study that shows if you're a black baby boy born 25 years ago, uh, which is not too much younger than us, DeRay, um, you have a one in two chance of being employed today. A one in two chance. That's due to early death, incarceration, or other inequities in employment and education. And Michael, hold up, hold up for a second. Where can, where can people go to find that study? That is, I need to go read that. That was um, our council, President Obama's Council on Economic Advisors. You know, right now it's on the My Brother's Keeper um, archive site on the White House website. Uh, eventually it will be on our Obama Foundation website. You know, and the reason why that study matters so much is because you'd hear President Obama talk about, you know, My Brother's Keeper isn't only about a moral obligation to make sure that America remains a place where you can make it if you, if you try and that your zip code doesn't, doesn't become a limiting factor along with your race. Um, but also because it's an economic imperative. Like you can't be a country that's based on production and consumption when you're just leaving so much talent on the sidelines. We've got nearly 7 million young people between the ages of 16 to 24 that are not in school and not working. It, it just it just doesn't work. What's amazing, though, is that same study that talked about one in two boys, uh, young men of color not being employed – um, would also show that if we could close the gap between young men of color between the ages of 16 to 54 and their white peers, we would increase GDP by 2%. That's $350 billion. So this becomes an economic imperative. This becomes a global competitiveness issue for America. And that's the reason why you've got Republicans and folks like uh, the Koch brothers that are excited about working on these issues because it's not just a heart thing. It's a head thing. And, you know, DeRay, you know all about the justice statistics and what we have going on with mass incarceration. But, you know, homicide still remains one of the leading causes of death for black and Latino boys. And for black boys, 6 percent of the nation's population and more than nearly half of the nation's murder victims. And so we got to do something about it. And that's why we started My Brother's Keeper. And that's the work that we're going to keep going. I also, though, DeRay, think it's important to remember, though, that despite these odds, despite these challenges, our young men are succeeding in remarkable ways. They're starting companies. They're starting organizations. They're protesting. But, you know, black men, when we are in the lives of our children, we're more active than any other group. Uh, black and Latino men are overactive in the military. They sample more in the military. Um, you actually have more black men that are in college than are incarcerated, um, more black boys that are not using substances and drugs. And so, you know, there's an incredible story to tell that despite what – you know, systemic barriers that were placed in front of our young people, we're still succeeding in remarkable ways. We just got to remove those barriers that continue to keep them, you know, out of so much opportunity. Now, you guys aren't the first people to ever focus on, on boys, black boys and men, and you certainly won't be, be the last. So I'm curious about, like, what's different about your approach or is it the, a similar approach that's been followed across the country and you're just scaling it in sort of a different way or, or are you measuring it? In a way that hasn't been tried before, like help me situate this in the context of a legacy of philanthropy in 
Black communities, definitely low-income communities and, and communities of color? There, there are a couple of unique factors for My Brother's Keeper Alliance. One, it's not a program. Um, we are not coming to the nation with a solution uh, that we want to replicate. Um, My Brother's Keeper was first and foremost about the president of the United States saying, hey, we have a problem, um, that we cannot continue to move forward as a country if we don't look at these issues of systemic inequality head on. Um, And so first and foremost, My Brother's Keeper was about a president of the United States in his office and now out of office saying this is going to be a priority. Uh, And that's a unique factor. I would say another factor is it was based on an evidence-based approach. Uh, Not only are we looking at evidence-based programming that we can lift up, it was based on studies that were showing that where we go wrong in America is we get so excited about solutions. And one of my favorite quotes is we have to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. Like we want to mentor our way out of this problem. We want to educate our way out of this problem. Um, But what really needs to happen is you have to make sure that there are very clear hands-off hands off at these six key milestones from cradle to career to make sure that our young men can make it into the to middle class and, you know, achieve their dreams. And so our whole model was was based on what's happening at each one of these each one of these points. Um, I would say the other thing that was really important, it was a cross-sector alliance. It wasn't just about the government. It wasn't just about federal or local. It was about bringing corporations in. It was about bringing philanthropy in and making a whole lot of noise and calling a whole lot of attention to this subject so that people can get together. Um, And, you know, the other thing I would say is when the president launched My Brother's Keeper, you know, he did it through a presidential memorandum in the East Room of the White House uh, where the Civil Rights Act was signed 50 years before that. You know, he could have had an event and said, we want to talk about these issues, but he put the full weight of the federal government behind it. And so we had 22 federal agencies and White House offices that were working on policy issues. Ban the Box was first mentioned in the federal government uh, in the My Brother's Keeper Task Force report. Um, I know you had the folks from Goucher College on not too long ago. Uh, We took that and ran with it and for the first time in 30 years created something called Second Chance Pell. So incarcerated individuals could finally get access to Pell Grants while they were incarcerated. Um, So there was the policy piece. There was also a private sector piece. We saw an exponential increase in dollars from philanthropy in the private sector going to these issues. And then the piece that I'm most excited about uh, and that we're continuing to work on in the future is the place-based piece. Uh, where President Obama created the My Brother's Keeper Community Challenge back in 2014. And we now have 250 My Brother's Keeper communities in all 50 states, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, 19 tribal nations, who have all created their own action plans on what they're going to do to move the needle in an evidence-based way, results-oriented to make a difference for boys and young men of color. And we've wrapped around them with technical assistance, spotlight, and support to try to continue to create a movement and keep this movement on fire. And that's actually what we're going to be focused on um, in the next chapter as the My Brother's Keeper Alliance take this, takes this work forward. In fact, actually tomorrow, um, we're launching a competition to identify several communities across the country where we're going to give them resources, cash, in-kind, um, spotlight, lift to help them move the needle on a specific challenge that they're facing related to youth violence prevention and mentoring, and also to make sure that they have strong infrastructure around this work. And then we're going to tell the story uh, so that other communities can learn what worked, what didn't work, where were failures. Um, And that's, you know, that's where we're going to be spending all of our time because we realize that community is the unit of change. And we're going to get the backs of these communities that are trying to help our boys and young men. So I heard you talk about an evidence-based approach. What does that mean? I think that people hear that phrase a lot and it's like, well, what are, what are the proof points or what are the pieces of evidence that you're using that, you know, we weren't using before? Like you just help add a little more life to what that actually looks like in practice. Yeah. So, you know, when I ran the Social Innovation Fund for the federal government, this is something that we spend a whole lot of time on. 
We have a problem in America and certainly around the world where we get really excited about things that look good or sound good. Um, we get excited about how many young people went through a program, you know, how many boxes we checked, how many coats we handed out. And we don't wait around to see what impact actually happened as a result. We've got one in eight nonprofits in this country that don't spend anything on research and evaluation. Um, we have more than 50 percent that have never documented a theory of change or any sort of organizational model. And so there are a lot of, you know, approaches out there that are good and that are nice and well-intentioned people. But we have no real evidence of if they worked. Now, there's a whole scale of ways that you can see if something works. You start off simply by, is it an organization that actually has goals for what it's trying to get done? You know, not how many people went through the program, but how many people are now having better grades or graduating from high school or going to college and staying in college and moving into to better jobs. Um, and so you can start by goals. Then you get to organizations that then actually measure through simple things like pre and post test. Um, sometimes you'll have organizations that will have a college come in and do a third party evaluation to see how this is working. And all the way up on the other side, you have things like randomized control trials so you can really measure uh, what's happening. And so fortunately, there are a lot of great evidence based approaches that are out there. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have room for promising and innovative to test new things and try new things. Uh, but we have to know what we're talking about when we're making investments, whether we're making investments out of our pocket or we're making investments out of the federal government pocket. And to give you a couple of examples, um, there are a few models that we looked at when we started My Brother's Keeper. Um, President Obama was really inspired by the Becoming a Man program in Chicago, um, which was really working with some of the, the the kids in Chicago that were having some of the most difficulties that were already having interactions with the criminal justice system that were likely uh, to drop out of school. And they're using a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and social emotional learning and doing these group circles and also even beginning to start to figure out um, pathways to make sure kids graduate and make sure that kids go on to post-secondary education or training. Uh, and they've now done two studies uh, with University of Chicago's crime lab where they're showing 50 percent more of their kids are less likely to reenter into the criminal justice system, where 20 percent are more likely to graduate from high school, uh, where they're actually saving uh, money from Chicago and from the school system as opposed to some of the other programs that are out there. And so there, there's a plethora of evidence-based programs that are out there that we can tap into, and we actually list a bunch of them on our website. We'll be back with Michael Smith of the Obama Foundation's My Brother's Keepers Initiative after this break. Crooked Convos is brought to you by Ring. <laughs> Look at this threat in the ad. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> That's so funny. Our new sponsor, Ring, first made a splash when they were on Shark Tank a few years ago. The concept is genius. <laughs> toot toot. <laughs> oh man I've never seen a doorbell pat itself on the back before <laughs> if someone rings your doorbell and you aren't home or don't want to come to the front door you can respond to the person using just your smartphone adding a layer of both security and convenience today more than a million people are using the Ring video doorbell to help protect their homes and now Ring has made a new product called Ring Floodlight Cam just like Ring's amazing doorbell Floodlight Cam is a motion activated camera and floodlight with HD video and two way audio that lets you know the moment anyone steps onto your property so for me I got my ring doorbell going, you know, so I get, I get solicitors, people mm -hmm. knocking on my door, trying to get me signed up for things. I don't, go, I I don't go for that. I got solicitors. I got sol solicitors. What is this? That. What are you selling me a vacuum? Is it 1965? <laughs> what am I buying encyclopedias? Um, don't come to my door. Don't come to my door at night. 
This is where I live. But anyway, let's say you're waiting for Domino's. DM hypothetically. Me for his let's say you're waiting DM for, me for his let's say you're let's say you're expecting <laughs> Domino's. You hear a knock on the door. You want to make sure it's not a solicitor. So you open up your phone, you you look at it and you say, Oh, phew. Thank God. That's a that's that's a pan pizza that definitely should be for more than one person. And it's not the solicitors asking me to sign something to save an animal, you know, because they think that's a this is an appropriate way to, you know, knock, knock, knock. Do you care about the whales? I do. Who the <laughs> fuck are you? You know? I've been caring about the whales this whole time. Personalize how you or someone you know is using Ring. I already did that, Ring. I already did it. Together, Ring Video Doorbell and Floodlight Cam put security in your hands, whether you're home or away. Simply put, with Ring, you're always home. And now, as a listener, you can save up to $150 off a Ring of Security kit when you go to ring.com slash crookedconvos. Up to $150 off at ring.com slash crookedconvos. That's ring.com slash crookedconvos. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Quip. I'm a person with a mouth. If you're a person with a mouth like John, it's likely that you don't brush your teeth for two full minutes, change your brush on time, or brush twice a day. Quip gets that. So they've designed the perfect electric toothbrush for John. I do brush twice a day. Yeah, you brush twice a day. What, what the fuck do I look like? Well, you definitely, you know, I, I guess I see the two minute thing, but it's like people are brushing their teeth at night in the morning. I would hope so. Sometimes three times. Yeah. Throw that's an extra one in there. Excessive. Anyway, Quip. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations. Oh, Tommy, can you read this go. next part? Nope. Will not. Tommy, will not. Tommy, I need your help. Endure this. Tommy, anymore. Tommy, please, please. <laughs> I asked for so little. Please. The guiding pulses alert you when you switch sides, making brushing the right amount of effortless. Yes. It also Qu- comes with a mount that suctions right on your mirror and then sticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, Thanks, whether it's Tommy. going in your gym bag or a carry-on. And because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean itself, Quip subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule. Read the part about the vibrations again. Delivering new brush heads every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Most toothbrushers don't get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year. Quip did. Quip did. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash crookedconvos right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's right, love it. First refill pack is free at getquip.com slash crookedconvos. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash crookedconvos. It will be love at first brush. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I'd love to know, like, how you have changed since you started to do this work. Like, are there any things that were surprises, misconceptions, things that you learned as a part of your new proximity to issues around boys and men as a part of the work? Like, I'd love to know what that looks like or how you think about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, There's so much. I mean, starting first and foremost, I think the biggest takeaway that I've had uh, it's kind of what we were just talking about, but this idea that it has to be a mix between program and policy. Um, we've got to have a good inside game and an outside game. While some folks that are out there um, running great p- programs like Becoming a Man, there are other people that have to be really tackling the policy imperatives uh, that are causing kids to lack o- access to opportunity or causing kids to fall down and not get to the success. And so I would say that's, you know, 
That's why, you know, when we were in the Obama administration, we had things like the Rethink Discipline program that was tackling both. Um, that's why we're excited about some of the communities that you're seeing that have um, employment programs that are providing kids summer jobs, but not just stopping at summer jobs, but, you know, asking why young people in this community don't have jobs and young people in this community do. Uh, and so I would say that's probably been one of the biggest things and, you know, not getting so excited just about the programs or just about the policy, but also making sure that these two things come together. You know, the other thing I would say is, you know, there's not enough funding that's in this space. Um, the folks that are doing this work struggle to find the funding to scale these interventions. Um, you know, people are are putting a lot of funding into programs that are that are very clear. You know, it's easy for me to fund a scholarship program. Uh, it's easy for me to fund a summer job program. But when you look at some of these interventions that are really looking at the whole cradle to career lifespan uh, or looking at following young people over the course of several years, which is it's going to take – or look at taking the place of a you know fully functional family unit and make sure that you're providing the type of mentoring that is actually a guide and a pathway to opportunity. It takes funding that's really hard to come by, uh, which is why you know we've been knocking on the federal coffers, knocking at philanthropy, knocking at corporate doors. You know we see folks like even like J.P. Morgan Chase with their fellowship initiative that's trying to do something about it. But the funding piece uh, is is really really a challenge. And I would say third, you know, you asked a little earlier, DeRay, about the the questions that we got about girls and women. Um, what everybody knows on the ground, while we need to make sure that we're taking time to recognize the challenges that our boys and young men of color are facing um, because they are big, these issues are indeed intersectional. And any of the My Brother's Keeper programs that are working really well on the ground in communities – have young women that are participating in them, have parallel My Sister's Keeper programs, have programs for single moms or single dads, have programs for the family, because you cannot make pathways to opportunity for a young person if you're not thinking about the entire system. And I, I feel really proud about the fact that every single thing that we did in the White House was creating pathways uh, for boys and girls. So things like the Second Chance Pell Initiative is working both in male and female incarcerated, uh, incarcerated individuals. Things like our second, uh, our success mentor program is working with 250,000 sixth and ninth graders, boys and girls. Um, but, you know, it's really got to be that full wraparound. And it really goes back also to that idea that people want to get in, excited about one thing, but we have to think about both ends and we have to think about how this affects the entire community and how we're creating pathways for that entire family unit. Now, what can people do? Can people volunteer with My Brother's Keeper? Do you want them to just go to a website? Like, what's your ask of people? So there is something that everybody can do. We actually just launched a campaign um, called We Are the Ones with President Obama, uh, Steph Curry, and Chance the Rapper. Uh, And folks can go to immbk.org and learn about that campaign. And that campaign is all about making it clear uh, how folks can get involved with this work. Um, First and foremost, there's something, if you go to that website called The Keeper Code, uh, where we've worked with young men of color all across the country to really start to tell their stories and outline what it means to them to be my brother's keeper. It's one thing to say those words. It's another thing to live that. And then it's inviting allies of all walks of life to be a part of that discussion about what it means to be my brother's keeper and starting to provide some ways that they can begin to take action. Um, if you keep looking at that that campaign website, we also lift up mentoring as an option, as something that anybody can do. And, you know, I've seen criticism that mentoring sounds soft. It is certainly an entryway uh, to help. But mentoring is really important. Like, you know, I was in a busing program in, in Western Massachusetts, which could be a whole other topic. Um, but, you know, the difference between 
the schools that my friends were in and the schools that I was going to is, you know, Johnny in the wealthier schools, dad was a lawyer. Um, and if he made a mistake, uh, he was probably going to get out of that. You know, Johnny in the wealthier schools, you know, had been around and gone to different colleges and knew what it was like to get scholarships. And so a lot of the mentoring isn't just a nice thing to take a kid out and go to the movies. It's about building social capital and holding our young people's hand to get them to pathways to opportunity. So we encourage people to be a caring adult in the lives of um, our boys and young men and all of our kids in our communities. Um, the other thing that you can do is get involved locally. Um, I love to hear uh, Congressman John Lewis talk about this idea where he says people always say, thank you, we're standing on your shoulders. And he'll say to them, get off my shoulders, get on the ground and do some work. So there are ways that you can do take action locally. You can, you know, go to those school board meetings. You can vote. You can volunteer. You can get involved with your local My Brother's Keeper community. Um, but we need active and engaged folks. And I'm excited to see so much of that that's happening now. And then lastly, I would say start where we started. We didn't do a single thing on My Brother's Keeper before we went and listened to young people. Uh, we went across the country and we heard from young people, what's working in your community? What's not working in your, young, in your community? What do you need from us? And that became the foundation uh, of a lot of the work that we've done My Brother's Keeper. And so ask yourself, when is the last time that you talked to your nephew? When was the last time that you talked to those kids uh, that you walk by every day who have become invisible to you? And ask them what they need and how can you get involved in their lives? Is there a website that people can go to or should they follow you? How do they uh, stay in touch? So folks should go to IamMBK.org. You can go to Obama.org forward slash MBKA. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at MBK underscore Alliance, or you can follow me on Twitter uh, at MSmithDC. Now, this is a question I ask everybody is what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Oh, man, Um, that's an easy one for me because I actually, I had a mentor. I, um, I grew up. Uh, in Western Massachusetts um, and a poor neighborhood. Both of my parents were 16 years old when I was born. Uh, and it was a poor black neighborhood, one of those neighborhoods that in the 80s and 90s, you know, the crack epidemic and changes in the economic situation turned a working class neighborhood into, you know, a place that was sometimes scary with not a lof- enough opportunity. And my mother sent me to a boys and girls club every day um, as a way to keep me engaged and involved in my community and frankly, to have a safe place to go. And so I spent every hour that I wasn't in school or in church um, at this Boys and Girls Club. And I had a mentor there uh, who was so amazing. And every day I would get off the bus and I'd walk in. Her name was Carol. Uh, she since passed away and she would say, Mikey's home. Um, but she often talks about the, uh, what she called the summer of my discontent. And I was 10 years old and I hated being there. I, I, I didn't want to spend another minute at the Boys and Girls Club. And so I found that I was sneaking away from my group uh, to go be with the little kids in the preschool room because I like kind of being in charge and I could tell them what to do and, um, you know, help them learn things. And so almost every other day, Carol was running me out of the preschool room saying, you need to go back to your group. You need to go back to your group. And I was bored. And so somehow uh, precocious 10-year-old Michael uh, writes a letter to this grown woman to tell her how much I hate going to the Boys and Girls Club. And at the time, the Boys and Girls Club's motto was the place that beat the streets. And I said, I'd rather be on the streets uh, than being at this Boys and Girls Club. You should let me do what I'm doing. I'm having a good time. Uh, and I, I ended the letter by saying, you know, one day I, you know, I want to take your job. And so Carol Rawson um, replied. She wrote me a letter back that I still have in my possession that I keep in my office. Um, and Carol, August of 1990, um, Carol wrote a couple things back to me that have stuck with me ever since. Um, and it was a, t- uh, 
two-page letter on both sides. One of the things that she said is, you know, regarding taking my job, I hope you would consider a path in youth development. We need young people like you from communities to stay in the community and give back to young people. Um, And that actually probably sparked my interest in this space and started me thinking about what are ways that I could serve. The other thing that she said to me was in that letter, she said, it's easy to be a leader of people that are younger than you or not as smart as, as you. The real test of a leader is someone who can be a leader of their peers. And that advice sticks out to me every week almost uh, when we're building teams and when I'm thinking about where I'm spending time and surrounding myself with people that are smarter, with people that push me, with people that challenge me uh, and making sure that I am always better. Um, And that advice just keeps coming back to me over and over again and has been such a huge part of my life. And as I think about my professional leadership. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. Consider your friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. I learned a lot. And uh, are you back to keep us posted on on progress that's been made? Thanks to Ray for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for listening. Check back next week for another great conversation from the Cricket Network. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.